To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, in him I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. That is Psalm 28, which along with Psalm 26 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, March the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are finishing up uh, Epiphany today. Um, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, and so a new season, the season of Lent, begins. <coughs> and it's a time, Lent's a time when we sort of take stock of ourselves and, and we begin to take things out of our lives, make room for Him in a new way. We do the same in, in the season of Advent, too. We're called to do the same thing there, although it's less uh, part of the season typically than... Um, then this denial is during the season of Lent. So I encourage you to you know, take some thought for, okay, what is it that, that I can do? What is it that has too much place in my life that can be moved out so that I can have more time and more space for him, for his worship, for his people, all those kinds of things. So here we are today. We're, we're in Deuteronomy 6 still. We were there yesterday and we're there today in, in verses um, 16 to 25. The epistle is from uh, Hebrews 2, 1 to 10, and then we're finishing up the first chapter of John. Well, not finishing, but um, we're doing John 1, 19 to 28 today. So in the uh, remember what I told you yesterday about Deuteronomy. It's sort of Moses' uh, valedictory address before he goes to be with the Lord. So he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Massah and Meribah was a place where they um, fussed because they didn't have water. So you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. There's another place in Scripture where that's said as well, and that is to honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. And so here he says you shall do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. In other words, if you if you in the land, if you obey him, if you do the things that he has said to do, then you'll be prosperous there. And that you may go in and take possession of the good land the Lord swore to give to your fathers by trusting thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. In other words, if you'll continue to obey him, then then you'll have the possession of the land that he's promised to your forefathers. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son. So when they ask what the meaning of it is, and so I, I, see if you can figure out 
how that this responds to that question. What's the meaning of all these things? Typically, when we think of a question like "What's the meaning of something?" then then we're going to unpack that a little more. You know, so what's the meaning of that parable? And Jesus will say, "Well, it means this." And so, when when you ask about the meaning of the commandments, how do we get there? And, and what is it that Moses says is the answer to the question of the meaning of the statutes, rules, and commandments. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that we might bring that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So that's the answer to what's the meaning of these things. And what the meaning is, is is deeper than that question. The meaning has to do with the Lord. The meaning is found in him, the one who did all the things to make it possible for us to live in the land today and enjoy the fruit of the prosperity of the land that God gave us. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. So the meaning is connected with, with the deliverance. The meaning is we're in covenant relationship with the one who has done good things for us. And the meaning then is it's an act of love. It's the way that we show we love him. It's the way that we show that we believe him. And it's the way that we return thanks for his goodness. That's the meaning of all these commandments, is is that in order to be God's people, we keep God's commandments. We recognize him to be worthy. In the gospel today, John um, is confronted by a group who comes from Jerusalem sent by the Pharisees. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? I mean, did they not know? They had to know who his father and mother were. I mean, he had this auspicious announcement of his birth, and so all eyes had to have been on him. So it's an odd question to go out and ask John, who are you? Well, I'm the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah the priest, and Elizabeth, who's in the priestly line as well. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Uh, John knew what they were asking. They weren't asking his name. They wanted to know who in Jewish history or in Jewish prophetic uh, tradition are you? What 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 is your place in the grand scheme of things? And John says, I'm not the Christ. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Although Jesus will later say that he was. Are you the prophet? The prophet, the one who is to come, the prophet like Moses, that Moses himself had said, when this one comes, listen to him. He's the, this prophet is the one that the Samaritans are looking for because they have only 
the Torah. They don't have, they have only the five books of Moses. They don't have all the prophets and the kings and all that stuff. They separated from Israel long before that. And so they have only that. So they're looking for this prophet like Moses. These are the two great figures that are in, that are expected to come, the prophet like Moses and Elijah. And Elijah's, the promise of Elijah's return is because he didn't die. And so he, the promise is that he will come back in, in Malachi's prophecy and prepare the way for Messiah. So they see these two others that they're questioning about as the forerunner of Messiah. Because John's already said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. So then, they, okay, are you this one or are you this one? I mean, these are high um, hopes or, or high, at least, they, they would show how, in high, how high regard he, John was held. And so the fact that they suggest either Elijah or the prophet is it's actually a lot of esteem there. There's there's something that they're observing in what John's doing and the way God's blessing it that that they are wondering literally is this are we in that time and is he one of those characters and he said no so they said to him who are you we need to give an answer to those who sent us what do you say about yourself he said I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So John said, I'm the fulfillment of this voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah had prophesied six or seven hundred years before. And he said, that's who I am. So John's taken the most humble path possible. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's all I am. I'm the guy who is, who is here to say that. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and then they continued to ask him, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Why are you baptizing people? Where, where do you get the authority to baptize people? That doesn't make sense, John. Your ministry doesn't make sense to us outside the context of these who are the forerunners of the Messiah because they have a special ministry and you're carrying on a ministry that's not technically yours. <clears throat> John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And when he makes a statement like, he who comes after me and I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, what, he, what he's saying is, is something that's completely out of step with the way that Jews thought about things because the, the, the younger serves the older. So it, it doesn't make any sense that John wouldn't be able to serve this one who is after him except for the fact that he's not really after him he's before him and john recognizes that reality and says i'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal and these things took place in bethany across the jordan where john was baptizing and it's interesting i've got a, a friend at the uh, gym who's sort of um, nominally nothing really um, except he, he is um, very antagonistic towards judaism and um, he's from Syria, actually. And so he will claim that Jesus was baptized in, in the Jordan near Syria. Well, this says John's in near Bethany, which is where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived. And so it, it, there's claims made, even though John very specifically points to a specific spot where he was. John, the evangelist, sorry, points to this specific place where John was. There, it can still be twisted and used for different purposes where Jesus was baptized. Because um, this guy will tell you, oh, it was in Syria. Um, 
and it clearly was not. <clears throat> but anyway, that, that it's just all these things are fascinating to me, how things get twisted and how people twist things for their own purposes and towards their own ends. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do here. They're trying to call John out in some way and say that your ministry is not legitimate because it's outside the scope of what would be given to you. You're not operating in the system, but you're doing something that's part of the system. And so you can't be legitimate because no one's given you that authority. It's the same basic question they're asking of Jesus when he throws out the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals from the temple. They come to him the next day and ask him about what authority do you do these things, and that's when he turns the tables on him and said, oh, I'll answer your question when you answer my question, and is John's baptism of God, is it from God or from man? And it puts him into the quandary of saying, we don't actually believe it, but if we say what we believe, then we're in trouble because the people will turn on us because they believe John to be a prophet. So here, what you get in, in this little scenario today is, tr- is an attempt to delegitimize John because what they're saying is you don't have the authority to do what you do. Therefore, it's not legitimate that you're doing this. But they can't because of the way John takes control of the situation and says, I know who I am, and I stand firm in this, and you're not going to dissuade me from what I'm doing. It's, John was a man who was fearless. He knew what God told him to do, and he did it. It was as simple as that. His ministry and his authority for that ministry came from God, not from them, and they thought they were in charge. And so they're going to like it even less when the one who comes after John comes. In the Hebrews lesson. Remember yesterday, well, I told you the point of the book of Hebrews is essentially to point to Jesus rather than any other place people would look um, to, to worship something. And so it begins with angels, um, and we're gonna con- he's going to continue with that theme of the angels. What he's concerned about is the same thing Paul's concerned about in Galatia and everywhere else, and that is the, the effect of Judaizing on the church, the, the sort of the return to the law. And, and when you do that, then, then it causes doubt in your mind about Jesus, uh, whether his sacrifice is sufficient or not. And so what the writer is at pains to do is to say the only thing in, in, in human history, the only thing in the world worth worshiping is Jesus. And it's exactly the same thing you see in Revelation 5, when no one's found who can take the scroll from the one seated on the throne, and John begins to weep, and then is told, no, wait, look, here's one, and the lion of the tribe of Judah, and what he sees is a lamb looking like it was slain, who then goes and takes that scroll. And so the writer of Hebrews is is writing sort of an apologetic for that very same truth. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and the, the Jewish belief, and Paul will talk about this in Galatians as well, the, the Jewish belief was is that the giving of the law at Sinai was accompanied by angels, that, that Moses was there in the presence of God, and the giving of the law itself was, was accomplished through angels angelic beings in that place. So that's when he says the message declared by angels, that's the message he's speaking of. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? 
So if that was that great, then how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation as is accomplished in Jesus? It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard it, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He says there's proofs. It was first declared by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard him declare it. And then at the same time, God was confirming that with signs and wonders and various miracles. For it was not to angels God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere. This is from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this son of man is the one that we're speaking of here. So everything is in subjection under the feet of the son of man. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the perfecting of Jesus required that suffering, and so it's odd then that we, um, we would seek to avoid that. Paul constantly talks about the need for suffering and, and, the, and how it's redemptive, and that's exactly what what the writer of Hebrews is arguing here, that even for Jesus it was redemptive, that he was made perfect through his suffering. Um, we, we should pay more attention to that. <laughs> we should pay way more attention to that. And, and so the point of Lent at some level has to do with causing some, quote, suffering in our own lives, denying ourselves something or some things for a period of time in order that we might be purified through that suffering and made perfect in that way. Um, so I would say, ask God what he wants you to do this Lent, what, what it is that, that is standing between you and him in any shape, form, or fashion, and, and get rid of that thing, not just for 40 days, but permanently, and, and recommit yourself to the worship of God and the knowledge of God, that you can't have a higher purpose for Lent than those two things.